everyone. My name's Jane Beach. I'm the Lead Professional Officer with Unite. Welcome to our Facebook Live session this afternoon and thank you for allowing us into your home, work, garden, wherever you're watching us this afternoon on what is a very warm day. We are all melting here. Whether you're listening live or on catch up, we hope you're keeping safe and well. And today we're talking all things regulation. And I'm very pleased to say we've got a very esteemed panel here with us this afternoon to answer your questions. If you haven't sent questions in already, you can comment on Facebook or you can um, tweet, use the hashtag UIHLive um, and please join in the conversation. So what I'll do is ask the panel if they can introduce themselves and I'll go according to who I can see on my um, screen. So Geraldine, can I start with you, please? Yes, Jane. Hello, everybody. My name is Geraldine Walters and I'm the Director of Professional Practice at the Nursing and Midwifery Council. Paul. Thanks, Jane. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Paul Johnson. I'm an assistant director in uh, the professional regulation director at the Nursing and Midwifery Council. Linda. Hi, Jane. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Linda Everett. I'm assistant director in professional regulation at the Nursing and Midwifery Council. Catherine. Thanks, Jane. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Catherine Timms, head of policy and standards at the Health and Care Professions Council. Laura. Hi everyone, I'm Laura Coffey. I'm the Head of Fitness to Practice at the Health and Care Professions Council. And Natalie. Thanks Jane. Hi everyone, I'm Natalie Berry, Registration Manager in the Registration Department at the Health and Care Professions Council. Brilliant. So thank you everyone. By way of background, why we're here this afternoon, um, along with the other trade unions and professional body colleagues, we've been working very closely together on the regulatory response to COVID-19. So since the beginning of the pandemic, which you know seems a long time ago, um, I'm sure you'll agree. So for example, um, we've worked on with the regulators on establishing temporary registers, increasing the numbers in the workforce, amendments to the education standards for students and changes to fitness to practice processes, for example, virtual hearings. So where we are now, really, the focus has shifted to how we return to some kind of normal. And we thought it was a good opportunity to provide you with an opportunity to engage in the conversations that are taking place. Because obviously, at the very beginning, it was very frantic, very, you know, a lot had to be done um, in quite a short time. So there wasn't the opportunity, perhaps, to engage with, with our members as we, we would have liked to do so. I'm very pleased to say that we have had a lot of questions submitted by email. So thank you very much if you have submitted one. Um, Dave Monday will also be keeping an eye on our social media channels behind the scenes. So please let us know if you've got any questions, comments, and if time allows, we will try and cover these as well. Obviously, if we're not able to, we will ensure you do um, get a response. So we'll, we'll sort that towards the end. Um, obviously, we're not able to deal with individual cases, so particularly around fitness to practice, um, but you can speak and you should be speaking to your local Unite regional officer. So without further ado, I think we will um, start with the first question. And we've had a question for the HCPC from Graham, but we had a very similar one from the Institute of Biomedical Science in Scotland, their um, committee. So what I'll do is, is go through that and thank you both for submitting those questions, really good questions. The essence of them are that as registrants, they are registered with the HCPC and they have to prove their fitness to practice at regular intervals. And as biomedical scientists, the laboratories they work in have to demonstrate that they're at a standard that meets um, ISO regulations. So what they're both asking really with the um, advent of kind of pop-up private um, facilities in both the UK and abroad, um, so Lighthouse Labs, um, what they're asking is, what is the HCPC's role here in terms of are those staff um, regulated with you? And do you have a role in, in kind of looking at 
personal standards and laboratory standards. So, so are you able, you know, to satisfy that actually staff are carrying out the tests in those laboratories up to the, you know, appropriate requirements are and are they being validated and reported? So who would like to take that question? That's quite a big question, really, but it encompasses a lot. But who would like to start? Because I'm sure it will be um, a few of you, really. Would that be you, Catherine? Lovely. Thank you. So uh, just to give a bit of context, um, the Health and Care Professions Council is a professional regulator. Um, So we regulate uh, 15 different professions. Um, and we set standards for those professionals. So if you are registered with us, you must meet our standards. And should you be registered with us and working in one of those facilities, we would still expect you to meet those standards. Um, that said, we don't have any remit over the um, over systems-based regulations. So the CQC, the Care Quality Commission, um, is the organisation who would um, oversee that. Um, And certainly those diagnostic and screening procedures are a regulated activity. Um, So it's for them to to oversee that side of things. Um, We have had recent discussions with the Chief Allied Health Professions Officers across the UK. um, And and these these laboratories came up in conversation. And we do have some concerns about the measures in place to to ensure um, patient safety in that regard and whilst it's not within our remit it is something that impacts our registrants and um, mm. so our chief executive is uh, committed to, to discussing that with the Department of Health um, and seeing what's what um, what actions that we can take or um, or measures and steps we can take to facilitate safe and effective practice in that regard and um, obviously within the confines of our um, our remit. Yeah, so it's probably, you know, a good opportunity maybe to talk about, you know, what is the purpose of um, healthcare regulation? So, and as you've alluded to there, it's about regulating individuals more than, you know, it's not regulating systems, is it? But, you know, there is a, a kind of tension how those two work together. And, you know, it's a real difficulty, isn't it, for registrants when they've got concerns about the service they're working in. So, you know, both of those questions really strikes you that it's, you know, it is registrants raising concerns, which is absolutely what they should do. Um, and I'm sure there are NMC registrants that would be in a similar situation. So what's your role in in helping and supporting registrants to raise concerns about about things like that and where, you know, in this particular situation, Catherine, did the concerns come from registrants that have made you as an organisation look into it or I know you maybe can't go into too much detail, but... No, so so we have had some concerns, fairly, fairly limited so far, um, but uh, we have had some concerns raised by registrants um, and we do have um, a lot of resources on our website to support people through raising concerns, which is set out in the standards. Um, and what we would expect is in the first instance, they would raise that with their line manager. Um, and should that not be dealt with sufficiently, then they should they should follow the appropriate escalation processes in their in their employment setting. Um, if they have additional concerns that they think fall within professional regulation, um, then they should be raising those directly with us. Um, a system regulation issue, um, there are some challenges around um, raising individual concerns with the CQC, and we recognise that that can be troublesome. Um, so I would encourage any HCPC registrant that has concerns about that to talk that through with the policy team at the HCPC, mm. um, and we can explore different um avenues to to resolve matters Mm. and an example of that is what I was talking about you know these these issues have come to light and whilst not necessarily within our remit we do have um levers with which to be able to support um change in that area Mm. Mm. Um, and we we will um use those as far as possible um I would just like to highlight that we we've got a wealth of um information on our website particularly in relation to COVID 
Um, and we do have an information sheet specifically about raising concerns in the mm. current climate because we mm. do appreciate that this is not an easy um, set of circumstances and raising concerns in, in a normal circumstance is a challenging um, thing mm. for an individual to do. So um, so use all the resources that we have available um, on our website and, and just get in touch with us if you're struggling to, to sort of, um, navigate your way through those. Brilliant. That's really good advice. And, and would the same apply with the NMC if you've got registrants that have concerns? Are they able to, you know, bring them to you and... Yeah, would you? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think we've had a great response there from um, from HP, HCPC. And, and similarly, um, you know, it's, it's sort of in our code that uh, people need to be mindful of speaking up if they're worried about something. Again, we'd say try your line manager, try your professional lead first. Um, I think the other things are most organisations now have to have a freedom to speak up guardian, which enables you to raise concerns in a, a little bit more of a safer space. Mm -hmm. like. um, part of our new education standards for um, people who are training to become professionals is, is really focused on how you build that confidence to speak up and mm. how you um, can best use your own information and intelligence to make your speaking up more effective, if you like, and how to make a, a good argument. So we're also interested in how we develop those skills in our registrants. Um, they can always come to us. Um, I think the issue there is because, you know, as, as the other regulators will say, we don't really have any powers over your employer. Mm. So we can't directly do anything about it. Now, one thing that we can do is share information between regulators. So whereas we can provide advice, um, I think we wouldn't like registrants to think if they report something to us, we can automatically put it right because we don't have the powers um, mm. to do that. So again, it's very much along the lines of support, signposting people to uh, sources of support mm. and best action to take using mm. our guidance. Um, mm. But I think most of all, um, don't feel that you can't do anything about it. Mm. You know, if you are really worried about something, keep trying and keep seeking support from what's mm. there um, in order to make your point. Mm. And obviously I would add to that. Oh, sorry, Paul, go on. Sorry, Jane. Um, so, I mean, as, as Jerry said, there's lots of information out there. Um, we've got some hopefully really clear sort of like signposting on our website in terms of different organisations who, who may be able to help, who may be able to support, who may be a better place to do something if you if you want to raise a concern with them. Um, on the on the wider the wider issue of sharing information and sharing intelligence, one of the things that we are looking to develop, which 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 will be of support over the medium to longer term is that approach to sharing intelligence mm. with our sort of like fellow sort of like well, with the mm. systems regulators. And there's a lot of work going on there, which we which we're really confident will be of benefit as we go forward. Brilliant. And I must admit, I this is something I've been raising for a while from a union point of view, because obviously we say to our members, you know, yes, you follow the process in the organisation, but don't forget, you know, you can get the support of your local representative or your regional officer or your professional officer. But, you know, I've been saying at a strategic level, it would be really useful for us to be able to feed in some of the intelligence we have, particularly you know, I mean, the situation described here in a way is a kind of political, well, it is a political decision, isn't it, to to um, privatise the services. So so we can kind of influence that. But but we have a, a really useful role in, in intelligence gathering as unions, because we often are the first people that pick up where there are issues about services. So, so I'll put another plea in that it would be really good to be part of that process. So I was having a conversation with the, the National Guardian's office so and, and raised that as well. So, so a brilliant question, um, both. I hope that has provided some reassurance that actually the HCPC are aware of this issue and are looking into it. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's really useful for registrants that are raising concerns to know that the regulator is listening and is acting on it so um 
watch this space and um, yeah, come back to us if we can do um, any more. I think it's also really important for them to raise it with you because that's the context in which people are working. So obviously later we will be talking about fitness to practice, but you know, that's often if things go wrong, it's because of the context, not necessarily because of the individuals. So, so it's very important. So, right, I'll carry on to the next question then. So we've got another question. We've got two questions really related around students. So um, I'll go to the first one, which is from HCPC and that's from Kate. So again, thank you very much, Kate, for the question. Really good question. And Kate says she's a first year student paramedic and due to the pandemic, she's missed a 12 week placement. So what will happen to this? And I think, is this Natalie? <laughs> I've probably forgotten who I'm supposed oh, to go right, to. Right. Oh, is that Catherine? Yeah. Okay. It's easier, I think, if I probably just say who would like to take this. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll be going all over the place. Thanks, Jane. Um, so uh, we've been working really closely with education providers because we understand um, the challenges that this um, that the COVID um, situation has created for um, education provision. Um, we have provided education uh, programs with flexibility to adapt their programs to meet the, the current challenges. Um, and um, they, they can talk us through what their planning is, but ultimately they can um, as long as they can assure um, themselves that their students are meeting or are able to meet the standards of proficiency that we set at the end of their programme, um, we've given them the flexibility to amend their programmes. Um, the Council of Deans of Health have worked um, with the NMC and HCPC um, to uh, generate a, um, a, a statement together which outlines the importance of um, student progression um, and, and a real commitment to ensuring that that isn't hindered um, as far as possible um, because of COVID. So what will happen is that um, final year students will be prioritised um, in relation to uh, placements but there will be um, consideration across all of the, the different um, years within the programme to make sure that everybody um, receives their appropriate placement uh, programmes. So it might not happen immediately, but, but your university should be supporting you through that and should be open and transparent with you around their plans to um, support you ongoing. So obviously, as you will at some point make up that, you know, yeah. those 12 weeks, yeah, which is, is good. So, um, Right, now we'll move on to the question for the NMC. This is from Moira, so this is um, from a representative perspective. So um, a Skiffen student member has was redeployed onto an acute ward during the pandemic um, and has been told by their university that their practice hours that, that they did on that um, during that time isn't going to count towards their Skiffen competencies and they're going to have hours to make up in September, which will obviously delay them qualifying. So she's asking, is, is this right? Or is there anything that can be done? Because obviously that student then is at a detriment. And, and I know from the discussions I was part of, we did say that you know no student really should suffer a detriment. But Jerry, I think that's one for you. Yeah, so a big health warning here. It's it's always difficult to, to sort of say what you think when you don't know the individual circumstances. Um, so I think it's I think it's right to say that uh, if you've been doing a skiffing program and you've not had the experience in practice which you need to get that qualification, then in some respects the university is right that that uh, period of time in the acute ward can't count your, towards your uh, skiffing qualification. Because it's a bit like saying, do a year's programme in Skiffen, actually, but don't do any time in practice at all. Now, what the universities might do to try and make up for that or to try and avoid the extension to the programme, um, as Catherine says, we've tried to make our standards flexible so they have got time to sort of fit that in. Um, but, uh, you know, a, a bottom line is it could be that some people might have to make the time up. Um, and... I'm really sorry that's happened to people. I think, you know, what this pandemic has done has upset a lot of plans for a lot of people. Um, we know that student learning will be disrupted. We've tried as hard as we can to put as much flexibility in to make sure that as many people continue their programmes 
and finish at the time when they're expected to. Mm-hmm. There may be some odd um, examples when that's really, really difficult to do in order to get that time back to meet the standards that are required. Um, I hope that's not many people. I hope that's hope that's not Moira. Um, but um, there is a possibility that uh, they would have to make that time up if they haven't got the required in t- hours in by the end of the programme. Mm. I think it's worth discussing with the university what some of the options might be because um, yeah. there is some flexibility in there. Yeah, that's really helpful. Brilliant. And I know we can't go into too much detail because probably the discussions are still going on, but but obviously we're coming to... Well, I won't say coming to the end, but we're moving into a different phase now, aren't we? Coming out of maybe the emergency um, processes. So could both of you just allude to, because I think it's slightly different, is it, for students from HCPC, particularly thinking of those that were in the final year, um, nursing students. So so what do we envisage maybe might happen there? Um, you know, is... is well we'll talk about the register later maybe but maybe just focusing on students what what are the plans now with their programs going forward Jerry do you want to take that first is that all right yeah so uh the third year students um who um, went into extended placements and our emergency standards allowed them to do that um we would hope that those who are expecting to finish in September will be able to to do so. Um, they need to have done their 4,600 hours. They need to have passed all their assessments. When we put those emergency standards in place, um, there was an anticipation that quite a lot of students going on to the uh, extended placements would go on those until they finished their course in July and August, and then they'd be able to register as normal. And that was one of the reasons why we didn't set up the temporary register, because we thought there was more of a risk that they wouldn't be able to qualify as normal had they gone onto the temporary register. So we hope for for the majority of students that should be fine. There will be other students, either those who are shielding, those who could not go into extended placements. Uh, We'd hope that their universities can work flexibly and hopefully they will uh, finish on time as well. That's the third years. You know that we also made some um, facilitative arrangements for first and second years. They didn't have to do this, but if their universities needed the flexibility, we allowed first years to spend their time in theory and second years to extend their time in practice to 80% and 20% um, theoretical study. All of those uh, emergency standards relating to removal of supernumerary status will be withdrawn at the end of September. So we've had discussions with uh, yourselves, Jane, uh, our other uh, representative bodies, the chief nurses, um, the council of deans, um, college midwifery, um, and we all have agreed that removal of those emergency standards by the end of September will helpfully lead us into the next academic year with people going onto more of a normal program, because what's really important is that we try and stabilise the student experience and learning as much as we can, because otherwise, the longer these unusual uh, arrangements stay in place, the longer it might take for people to get their course back on track how it should be. So so the decision was for September, because that starts a a new academic year, leaving one or two standards in place which allow some flexibility, particularly around progression from year to year, Um, and in the hope that we could still cope with what is an ongoing pandemic but isn't quite as acute, um, Mm. and we can keep the students um, in as normal an environment as possible. Is there anything you from HCPC again? Would that be you, Catherine, or Natalie? Anything Um, that's different for you or with your students? I guess the, the 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 difference to add on that is that um, we um, facilitated uh, final year students who'd completed all their clinical placements um, to um, be on the temporary register to support the pandemic, um, and we recognised the challenges around um, progression through courses and the impact for for students. So we are working towards winding that down, um, and and um, so that we can 
resume a normal process for education provision. Um, so much much like the approach the NMC has taken, but in a slightly different manner because we took a slightly different approach to temporary registration. Okay, thank you. I've had two further questions in about students. So um, I've got one that will be for the NMC. So one from Vivian that says, I work in the community as a CPN. I'm worried about students going out on home visits. I don't think they should due to the risk to self and clients due to the current pandemic. What are your thoughts on this? So if they are students, they should still be supervised and supported. And it's, it's really the, the role of the registrants who are responsible for that supervision and support to make sure that their activities don't stray into something beyond their level of competence. So I think there's a, there's a which is part of the reason we weren't sure about the temporary register. Um, these people may be on extended placements. Um, they may be being reimbursed, but they are still students. They, they don't know any more than they did before. So whilst they're providing support to the workforce, uh, we're really keen that they are, are still recognised as um, being students and not being qualified professionals. Um, so they may be doing an extended placement, um, but we're not extending their um, competence to go with it beyond what they have learned already. And in terms of, I'm not sure if she means in terms of um, students going out to do visits in terms of putting themselves or clients at risk, but I'm guessing they would be the same as any other practitioner going out. So you do the risk assessment before you go and do visits because students are still going to need to learn, aren't they? So if they're not shielding, they're not in a high risk group and risk assessments are done for the people, you know, they're going to visit. I'm in I don't know if anything's been decided going forward around how students are going to learn. Are they still going to be able to go, you know, into people's homes in view of the pandemic? I'm I'm imagining they will need to. I think that I think the issue here is you you wouldn't treat that student any different from any other student who you mm. might be saying you might be saying go and visit a patient. Who is at risk for some reason? Because don't forget, we you know there there is a coronavirus risk. There's always been infection risks of other types, mm. and the registrant who is responsible for supervising that student um, has always had to take those things into consideration. Now we know that the risks at the moment are much more dispersed, mm. but um, it doesn't change that relationship between supervisor and student and risk assessment that you'd expect to be put in place whenever. Brilliant, thank you. And I've got another one for HCPC. Um, are you happy with the ambulance now? It's NQP programme, is that newly qualified paramedic programme? Have any issues been raised with you about this? Who would like to take that one? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm happy to take it. As far as I'm aware, um, we haven't had any direct concerns uh, raised recently, um, but I'm happy to take it away and, and double check with our education department. If, if that's, that's brilliant. Thank you, Catherine. So thank you very much for the question, Steve. We will get back to you on that. Catherine has uh, made a commitment now. Then I've got another one that I'm going to have to read. Now, this one is... Um, from Bernadette and joined, I'll have to read it out so I don't, don't miss any bits, um, joined as HV programme leader at university. Re-comment for Skiffen Hours. That is representative our, of our entire cohort who have just resumed studies as they were redeployed prior to the assessment period. So they all now need to submit academic work prior to resuming practice. Some were redeployed to community assessment clinics where skills were required that could be transferable. However, to apply this, it would disadvantage students who were redeployed to other acute clinical placements. So, so that's some, some feedback for you. I think there might be so a bit more. They should have been, yeah, they should have been completing in September, but they now won't complete until January. So that's some feedback um, 
more than a question really so thank you very much for that Bernadette it's yeah it's it's useful feedback and shows the the impact that the pandemic has had on on some people's training exactly and I think there'll be lots of different examples nationwide mm. um, and all universities what this has really shown is that all universities run their programs in slightly different ways mm. so there's a different range of issues so one of the things that we can best do is try and give universities the flexibility so they don't have to stick rigidly within some standards which prevent them mm. from dealing with some of those problems locally Mm. But we're also in constant uh, talking with the uh, Council of Deans who are bringing to our attention where additional flexibilities might help and mm. uh, where we can do that, we will. And it's a really difficult one, isn't it? Because obviously that, you know, the health visiting services would have had, you know, newly qualified health visitors joining in or school nurses, I don't know what, joining in September, whereas now they're not going to have them until January. So that has you know, a knock on to the service, doesn't it? So, yeah. Right, we move on to fitness to practice. Now we've got a couple of questions um, related to that. So um, there's one question from Sharon, um, which is for HCPC, but actually I think it would apply to both of you. So in terms of fitness to practice cases, is there a time limit on fitness to practice inquiries? And do the HCPC, but I think also NMC could answer, have the authority to demand the relevant information from an employer in order to conclude a case? So I think this is somebody that, you know, it's it's a hold up at the employer level so I don't know if you're willing to answer that one so yeah right. I, yeah Laura I, sorry that's all right <laughs> yes, I'll tell please. them for the HCPC so in relation to the length of time since um an incident took place there is no time bar on making a complaint to us about an incident what I would say to that is that Obviously, the longer ago something occurred, the harder it can be to gather relevant evidence in relation to that matter. And often we find that if something happened over five years ago, that tends to present a particular problem. However, we will always do our best to get any available evidence that there is. So we'll always look into anything if it raises a fitness practice concern, but just be mindful that sometimes there are challenges given the length of time that has passed. So we do have powers to require a third party organisation to provide us with any relevant information during an investigation. Mm -hmm. And that could include an employer, um, depending on the nature of that evidence. Obviously, our preference would be to work with um, another party that's involved in the case to overcome any barriers there might be to providing evidence. We recognise that employers are working under very challenging circumstances mm -hmm. and everyone has their own day job to do and and providing evidence for us may not necessarily be at the top of their priorities. So we will mm. always try and work together to assist you to help us. But ultimately, if we really do need evidence um, for an investigation, we do have the powers to compel someone to provide that to us. Because mm. obviously it can be distressing, can't it, for registrants, you know, if that's the, the final bit of the, you know, what they need to get their case resolved. Yeah, that's difficult. Have you got anything to add to that, Paul? an NMC point of view? I think the situation is almost exactly the same, same. as with colleagues at the HCPC. Um, we, do, we do have um, processing times whereby we, we aim to take our cases from receipt through to a final conclusion in no more than 15 months. Um, and our escalation processes are aligned with that, that overall time period. So similarly, we, we, we don't want to use the powers that we've got, and we very rarely have to use the powers that we've got to compel people to, to get involved. So what we do have is we have escalation processes that exist with different organisations that, that we make inquiries of. And as I say, we try to make those inquiries at the earliest possible point to enable us to complete our cases within that 15 month period. Brilliant, thank you. Um, and the other one, uh, which again is related to um, fitness to practice, but and again relates to both of you. So are you still taking complaints during um, this time? And are these being managed in the context of COVID-19? Do 
want to start this time? Would you like me to go first this time? Yeah, go on, Paul. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so the, the short answer to the first question is yes, we, we, we are still um, receiving complaints and our terminology in the NMC is referral, so we, we still are receiving them. And we we made some decisions back in March about how we'd how we'd go forward and how we'd progress our casework and during the emergency period. So whilst we are receiving referrals and we're not proactively progressing um, our investigations and our fitness to practice hearings at the moment because we would we didn't feel as though the the sector and the workforce would be able to support the level of fitness to practice activity that we normally have. So what we've done instead is we've concentrated on work that we think is necessary to um, satisfy any public protection risks that we might have in an interim period. So we are, if we think that there is a risk, we're applying for interim orders to restrict practice. And if somebody is on a substantive order, which is about to expire, we're asking panels to look at those. Um, but generally with everything else, um, We've, we've taken the approach to minimise the other activity and the other contact that we have with the sector so that they can concentrate on providing frontline healthcare. And that, that, that will have to change. And, and I think we're, we're, we're making some announcements today around how we start to um, re-engage and re-engage sensitively with, with both individual registrants and with employing organisations. We think that we'll probably start doing some, um, some investigation casework as we move through towards the end of July, and we think we'll probably move back to holding some physical hearings at the beginning of September, but only where we're satisfied that it's safe to do so. Right, okay. Lovely. Thanks, Paul. Laura? Yeah, so similarly, we've maintained an open um, complaints process for fitness to practice um, throughout the pandemic. Slightly differently than the NMC, we've continued to investigate um, new referrals and ongoing cases um, that we had before the pandemic as far as we are able to. So there have been some instances where third parties have been unable to engage with us to provide information because of their own pressures as a result of COVID-19. And we are making allowances for that. So extending timeframes and keeping regular contact, again, trying to assist places to provide us with information where we can. And we also recognise that registrants may um, find it difficult to engage with us during the fitness to practice process or to seek representation, for example, so again, if registrants are contacting us with those kind of concerns, we're making allowances and providing extended timeframes and negotiating suitable timeframes for our registrants as well during the process. Brilliant. Um, we've had another a follow-on question about this, really. So any complaints about the non-compliance around wear, the wearing of PPE or any particular issues there? Laura, have you... Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you're allowed to say, are you? But <laughs> yeah, I can say in broad terms. So yeah. we have we have received um, complaints uh, relating to COVID nineteen, and they fall into a number of areas. But one of the areas um, has related to non compliance with PPE, and that has tended to be in relation to our registrants that work in the community or right. self employed and have their own practice. For example a physiotherapist who has their own practice in the community. That is just an example. So mm, we have received mm. those kind of complaints. Yes. Mm. Right. What about you, Paul, at the NMC? Uh, we have received complaints um, right. along those lines, referrals along those lines. Yeah. Um, but I think you touched on it earlier on, Jane. So you mentioned sort of like context um, in fitness to practice cases, you know. When when we're looking at those cases, um, we will be looking at the context and trying to understand the context in which people were working yeah. and, and, and whether or not the way in they were working was in line with the principles that set out in the code. Um, so, so we have had some. I can't talk about the specific details. No, detail, no, sorry, <laughs> um, no, but context no. will context will be key in terms yeah. of how we how we look yeah. at those cases. And I know, you know, another issue is is social media, isn't it? Which has been very busy at this time. So we do advise our registrants to you know make sure they're they're up to date with social media guidance. So, okay, right. So. We move on. So we've got a question from Kelly um, that says she's been off the NMC register for about four years and she needs to work 750 hours to revalidate, which she's not able to achieve by working on her days off. She was able to join the temporary register 
and we'd like to know how long it's going to be open for and what happens to nurses who want to get their permanent um, PIN number back after the crisis is over um, because she'd like to be able to find a way to do this without going into financial deficit. Again, a great question, Kelly. Thank you very much. And I think that's one for Linda, is it? It is. Thank you. Thanks, Jane. Thanks for the question, Kelly. Um, and uh, thank you for stepping up and joining the temporary register. As at today, if people are interested, we've got about 14,100 people on the temporary register. Um, so um, you know, that's going really well. Um, the temporary register was created uh, under the emergency legislation. Um, when the Secretary, Secretary of State uh, notified us that we are in an emergency situation. So it will close when he tells us that the emergency is over. Um, mm -hmm. So it's up to him, basically. Um, we are working with the Department of Health and Social Care really closely, because um, obviously we would like as much notice as possible to make sure we've got the policies and processes in place for the smooth transition and closure of the register, um, and so that we can notify everybody that's on the register of what's going to happen. So at the moment, no idea when that's going to happen, but I don't think it's any time soon as we're moving into a different phase of uh, the emergency. Obviously, there's still a requirement for, for registrants out there. Um, in terms of moving back to permanent registration, um, before uh, the COVID, which seems like a whole lifetime ago now, so in January this year, we did actually make it possible for uh, people who lapsed from the register to uh, readmit through the test of competence as well as obtaining their practice hours. So that route's open anyway. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, and obviously, you've, you need your 750 if, um, hours if you've been off the register for uh, more than five years. Uh, so, so you would need to obviously be able to add to your current bank of hours with the practice hours that you're clocking up as a temporary registrant as well. So we're looking at ways to be able to support people back onto the permanent register. Um, I think it's just important to say that obviously the standards are the standards, the requirements are the requirements, um, but what we are looking at in terms of our policy is to see how we can facilitate and support people back on as smoothly as possible. Yeah, no, that sounds quite positive then for, for Kelly, maybe some of the things to look at. So. Um, Natalie, I think this would be one for you. Is there any difference in the HCPC process? Have you got plans to support people on the temporary register back into practice? Yeah, very similar to um, what Linda said. I mean, it's similar in that obviously we don't know how long we're going to have that temporary register for. Um, our requirements still stand in returns to if someone wants to come onto the main register, we still have kind of our returns to practice, um, you know, process in place. If someone's not practiced for, you know, maybe over five years, we would still expect them to do their 60 days. Um, we don't have anything like the test of competence like Linda mentioned from the NMC half. Um, ours would be that that return to practice would need to be completed. But obviously we do know that might be a little bit more difficult given the current circumstances so there is always consideration for these things but as it stands our process is as it is you know we still have the temporary register with our registrants on there for obviously the covid emergency and and our process is just the same in terms of coming back by a readmission process um, and completing that returns to practice but with that said you know what i would say is that depending on how long this goes on for we may need to look into this again um, mm. but it's just so hard at the moment to know um, you know, how long this is actually going to happen for. So we'll keep it under review. Brilliant. And a kind of a follow-up question really is to ask, well, both of you really, you know, it's a, a student asking whether there's any delays in the registration process at the moment in terms of getting on the register, you know, yeah. quickly. Um, Natalie. Yeah. Um, in terms of coming onto the register, um, you know, onto the main register, we're still working within our 10 working days um, to get those applications through and processed. Um, obviously, we had to adapt quite quickly to working from home and taking our processes. And we're not completely online with any of this. We're still quite paper based. As you can imagine, it's been quite a challenge. But um, we've managed to stay within our service level when it's not changed. So, yeah, we're, we're turning things around as quickly as we can and stay within service. 
at the moment. Brilliant. Thank you. And Linda, yeah, the same. Oh, Jerry. Oh, oh sorry. Linda first. I'll go to Linda first. <laughs> um, I was, was going to say, uh, um, no delays at RM particularly. It was just about getting used to working from home, but most of our processes are online. Um, and as long as there aren't any health and character issues, people will sail through um, quite quickly. So, but it is brilliant. Brilliant. Jerry. Yeah, just to go back to Kelly's question, and um, this not this might not apply to Kelly, but a few people that I've spoken to are a bit confused in that you can use your hours on the temporary register towards your 450 or your mm. 750. Mm. So if you've been off the register for three years, it, you know, if you do 12 weeks of a, of a 37 and a half hour week, that's all you need to get back onto the permanent register. Mm. And there's also a bit of confusion about revalidation. So you don't have to revalidate. You just have to do the hours. Um, right. If you don't, you don't need to revalidate on the temporary register. Brilliant. Okay. Lovely. Yes, okay. Catherine. Sorry. Just to say that that follows for the HCPC as well. Um, and and we are look, we will be looking at flexibility around the timeframes within which we expect people to have done those hours, recognising that if you weren't able to secure um, a position under the temporary register, that you would you would perhaps um, have extended delays in being able to um, to do practice hours. So so there are some some flexibilities afforded, but like Natalie said, the the requirements to meet the standards um, are are still there. Brilliant. And we have had a, a question from Saz, which I think may well have been um, answered. It's about FTP at HCPC um, saying as the pandemic delayed investigations, registrants can no longer contact their case managers by phone. When will registrants be able to speak to their case managers? Yeah, so um there isn't a significant impact in terms of delays to investigations. As I said, we are continuing with them. Um, there has been an impact as um, recognised um, in relation to being able to contact us by phone. And that was one of the issues for us in terms of working from home and how quickly that lockdown came into place. And the, the nature of our phone systems in the office has meant we're not able to reroute those calls um, through to our members of staff who are working from home. So unfortunately, um, we recognise that at the moment people can't necessarily speak to their case managers. What I would say is that we are able to provide callback requests from staff. We can make those outgoing calls. So if you would like to speak to your case manager, you can send an email to our fitness to practice address, which is on our website and you should already have um, that if you have an open case and request that callback and someone will, will call you. We are also working at the moment um, in setting up or exploring some online telephony system that would allow us to reopen our um, phone lines, obviously in recognition that this working from home situation is going to go on for longer than perhaps you might have thought back yeah. at the beginning of March. So we are working on getting that back online as soon as possible, because we recognise that that's really crucial that you should be able to speak to your case manager. But as I say, um, do put in a, an email request for a call back and we will call you back. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, and we've got another one for the NMC um, from Kenga. My three-year revalidation is due in July 2021. Will the current extension arrangements be extended to registrants who are due their revalidation next year? Thank I'm you. interested in this because that applies to me as well. <laughs> no chance. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Um, so, uh, thank you for the question, Kenga. Um, I might need to read some of this because it does get very complicated. Uh, so, the emergency legislation gave us the powers to be able to extend the, re the timeline for retention and revalidation timelines. Um, for those that were revalidating from March through to June this year, everybody had a blanket 12-week extension. So that applied across the board if you hadn't um, submitted on time. Um, and then those who were due to revalidate from July this year through to September, um, the 12-week extension will also be available to you, but it'll be an opt-in basis. So you'll need to contact us and ask us uh, for that extension. Um, a second 
12 week extension period is available to everybody as an opt in basis, um, but you will need to get your confirmers to uh, support that application for an extension um, and let us know that it was in, due to the COVID emergency. Um, so that will take us through to September and effectively gives uh, some people up to 24 weeks, um, basically six months to submit their revalidation, which was in line with what stakeholder feedback was telling us that that should be sufficient to see us over this current period. We're looking at whether or not a third extension is possible or, or appropriate to be able to give, but we're looking at that policy at the moment. Um, the other bit of the policy we're looking at is looking at whether extensions will be available to those that are due to revalidate after September. So a very long-winded um, answer to the question is, at the moment, uh, we wouldn't be looking at July 2021. Um, hopefully we will be in some kind of normal by then, um, but we will be obviously keeping it under review because uh, who knows um, how, how long this is going to go on for and what the circumstances will be. So I hope that's helpful. Um, and so if you're due to revalidate next year, Jane, you will need to revalidate. I will have to do it. I need to get on with it. And I think that would be a message. It, it's going back to when revalidation started. We did a lot of sessions saying to people, you know, try and get ahead of the game. And, and I, you know, it's been really difficult at the moment, but I think that's probably the message as we start getting, you know, back to some normality. There's been so much learning going on through this period. So if you can capture reflections or, you know, learning points doesn't have to be formal, you know, CPD, now's the time to do it, she says, which I've, it's been on my agenda for a long time to do it. And I really must do it. So I'd say the same to members, you know, please try and, and get ahead of the game. It makes it much easier in the long run. So, um, and one, again, it's from the Biomedical Science Institute in Scotland. During this time, there's been less opportunity to attend journal club meetings, presentations from internal and external speakers. Will this be taken into account during the next round of CPD audits? That's for uh, Natalie, I think. Yeah, I'll take that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I know that, you know, at the moment in terms of CPD, um, especially with like formal training, for example, could be more tricky. Um, what we would say to all of our registrants is that, you know, CPD is a broad range of different activities. You know, it can be self-directed, it can be online, it can be things that they're doing from home, particularly as they're spending, you know, a bit more time at home. So what I would probably advise as our registrants and our biomedical scientists as well to have a look at our list of examples of CPD activities. Um, because what they'll probably find is actually they're still doing a lot of CPD, but it may not just be in a more formal setting. Um, with that said, obviously, if a biomedical scientist or any other profession was selected for CPD, um, we would, you know, the assessors would kind of take on board that, you know, there may be larger gaps or not as much of a mixture, but that can be explained in the profile when it's submitted and any gaps larger than three consecutive months would need to be explained. But obviously a pandemic probably would be a very much justified reason yeah. for the assessors to understand. But we would still expect people to be doing quite a bit of CPD around this time, although maybe a bit more tricky to log it because they're probably a lot more busier. So we mm. just encourage people to try and log their CPD as they remember, because yeah. it's very hard to remember what you've done last week, never mind yeah. over a two-year period. And Jerry's just made a very good point, certainly for NMC registrants. And I, I don't know if it would be the same for HCPC that actually watching this could count towards participatory CPD as well. So, and I think a couple of things from me. So I think I, I know the answer already, but I'm going to ask it. With the revalidation date, so if you've had an extension on revalidation, would your does your revalidation date stay the same as it was originally? Doesn't kind of shift at all. And the same for HCPC with CPD audits. If your audit's been cancelled, does that, you know, if you've got a longer time then before your next CPD audit. I'll, get, I'll let Linda answer first and then we'll go to you, Natalie. Uh, very short answer. Yes, you're completely right. So if you've had an extension either for your retention period or for your revalidation, the period still stays the same. Stays the same. Okay. And what about CPD audits? Yeah, so any audits that have been cancelled this time round, they've been completely cancelled. So we wouldn't then run another audit for the two and a half percent until another two year period. So they would remain the same dates, but it would be a new selection of two and a half percent of the register for that audit. Okay. Um, 
we've got we haven't got very long to go um i've got another one i think for you natalie from nadia um asking why it's difficult for applicants to get registered as biomedical scientists at the same time as they register with the institute of biomedical science portfolio sorry it's difficult trying to read the question <laughs> did that make sense or not um, um let me read it out i've got tweets coming as yeah. well so why is it so difficult for applicants to get registered with the hcpc as biomedical scientists at this time when the ibms portfolio has been completed and all educational aspects met universities are closed so how can it be expected for them to send past lists hopefully you understand that one <laughs> um, yeah i'm guessing this is someone applying for a uk route to come onto the register as a biomedical scientist um, right. and essentially what we need in order to come on via the uk route is to know that you've completed successfully an approved course and um, so we do require a, a pass list for the cases of biomedical scientists it may be that they've obtained a certificate from the IBMS. So again, they would then provide us with a list of those successful you know, applicants. Um, if we don't obtain that list, we wouldn't be able to put someone on to the register just because we need to know they've successfully completed what is required of them. It's hard because I don't know about this individual case. And I know yeah, but maybe they can contact, can they contact somebody to yeah, got particular I mean, issues? I mean, ultimately, we have to, you know, ensure this person has met our standards um, before we put them onto the register. So we would need that pass list. So my best advice would be, I know that the universities are closed, but, you know, if there is any point of contact in the Institute at all that they could get through to, um, I know we've had this come up and some applicants have successfully been able to get through. It's just taken a bit of time, but ultimately on our health, we can't relax that just for the fact that we need to know someone's done that approved course before we place them on the register. We can, um, we can certainly pick it up with our education department and see if they're aware of anything. And if there's anything that we can do to facilitate, then we will. But I think Natalie's um, right. It's a, it's a, a, a delay in, an, in another organisation, but we, we can pick it up with our education department. I've got um, one final one um, asking whether there are any... Um, proposals for a fee increase I think it's directed at HCPC um, they're kind of making the point that you know they're hailed as heroes so why would they be asked for more money to register yeah. I know we've had that raised haven't we before about you know would it be possible for the NMC HCPC to to waive the registration fee during this time um, I don't know who would like to take that from I can take Catherine, would that be you? Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, so in terms of waiving the registration fee, um, whilst whilst we recognise the the immense efforts that our um, our healthcare um, professionals have delivered towards um, meeting the COVID crisis, um, we are solely funded by registrant fees, and, and we have a, a statutory obligation to set standards, approve education programmes, and take action where concerns are raised. Um, and, and deliver our whole programme of work to um, support patient safety. So unfortunately, we can't waive the fees as um, entirely. Um, I'm sure um, many of you are aware that the HCPC um, consulted on an increase to our fees um, fairly recently, um, and we have been in discussions about reducing the initial um, proposal that we went out with. We have paused the increase that was planned um, I'm, I think we are still considering um, when it would be appropriate to, to undertake that increase, but we are recognising the, the impacts that registrants would have felt. Um, and so the planned increase that we were making, we have paused. Thank you. Anybody from the NMC want to add anything? Or I know um, Andrea has written specifically on this point, hasn't she, on the website? with you know very much similar to our argument to um catherine really um i think if if uh, the government wanted to waive the fee then for, in order for us to keep our activities uh, to ensure patient safety along the lines that catherine's described uh, we would need the money to come from somewhere else um however i can say that we're not 
thinking of increasing the fee. That's a bit of good news, thank you. <laughs> but not putting it down either, which would be um, helpful. But anyway, that is the last question you might be relieved to know, but uh, we have run out of time. So um, that hour has really flown by and I'd really like to take this opportunity to um, thank everybody that's watching. Thank you all for your questions. They were really 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 good questions i hope you feel you've had the answers but please come back to us if not and we'll do our best to get you an answer but i'd really like to thank my panel as well thank you very much for coming for giving your time and answering those questions so so well um, thank you to dave behind the scenes for um the technical bit um and we will finish there take care everybody look after yourselves and and thank you all for all that you're doing. We're really, really appreciative. I'll let you all say goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.